All right, Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. We are technically supposed to be doing Jeremiah chapter 9 tonight, and obviously that is not happening. We don't really have a lot to do with 8, so I don't know. We're just going to... We're just going to pick it up and just see what happens. Obviously, this morning, once a, a, a visitor is present and you're kind of walking through a book like this, you have to kind of stop and, and try to add that theological context and how we're trying to approach it. You have to try to get them caught up. You have to, you know, you can't just say, hey, you've missed everything. And here we are. So, you know, you kind of have to try to, you want it to be, you know, somewhat worthwhile. So hopefully... Hopefully it was uh, beneficial uh, for the visitor and, and beneficial for everyone else. It, the, the reminder of the theological perspective is important. And, and just, you know, we can't repeat it enough because I think most sermons, and I, and I will stand by this, um, you can go, I mean, there's thou- hundreds of thousands of sermons online on the book of Jeremiah. You can go listen to them. They all approach it in a very... You do this, you do this, you do this, in a very law-based uh, idea. So uh, trying to approach it from a gospel base, seeing the law, because the one thing we, I think everyone can agree, even though preachers don't preach it this way, the one thing we know is that Israel was failing way before Jeremiah. They were failing during, and they were going to fail after, and then you open to the New Testament, they're still failing, and then they're wiped off the face of the earth, and then the church has been committing the exact same failures for 2,000 years. So no, no, nothing has changed. Even though we constantly st- still preach, the law is the answer. The law is the answer. The law was never the answer, all right? And I know, you say, well, that makes no sense. I know it makes no sense from a practical perspective, but then why would God keep giving them the law? Because that was the whole point, is to drive them to the point of total despair and and i know it, it's hard to read it that way because we're so conditioned to go just write down the seven things okay so in jeremiah 8 what are the seven things i'm supposed to do in jeremiah 7 what are the six things i'm supposed to do and you just make your list and you get convicted and you say we're gonna do this better and the reality is no one ever does it better so we're in chapter 8 and it's a pretty difficult chapter it's it's <laughs> It's pretty harsh, it's, it's uh, horrible, and there's just no way uh, to get around it. Uh, and we'll, we'll go back to, uh, yeah, we'll just, we'll just start in chapter 8, all right? We'll just start in chapter 8, okay? Because uh, if you go back, I guess if you go back to 7, remember God's house is defiled in chapter 7, verse 29. Uh, Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away. Take up a lamentation. Uh, on high places, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Basically, hey, you're defiled and you're you're basically going to be forsaken because of all of your sin. Verse 30, for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called my, my name, to pollute it. The temple is being defiled. Verse 31, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their son and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, nor neither came it into my heart. And there's lots of debate of exactly what happened, how widespread this was, but it appears they were sacrificing their own children. And, it, and it's hard for us sometimes to recognize or to realize how bad the situation got. But I, what I want you to at least take note and to remember, this is very important, the people offering up their children for sacrifice, 
This is not the pagan nations. This is not the Gentiles. This is God's chosen nation that have the law, the prophets, the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, God revealing himself, a history of God revealing himself in absolutely extraordinary ways, God delivering them from bondage, God feeding them miraculously. They've got miracles. They've got everything you could think of, and they still end up where? More than idolatry, sacrificing their own children. It's hard to wrap your, it's like it almost seems like not real. But it just demonstrates that the horrible sins that happen, that like the, the church still maintains the mindset that it's always the world, the world, the world, the world. The world do, does these horrible things. The world does these horrible things. And we never stop to look at the, how bad things are in the church. Again, if you, you just, just do a basic Google church and how many children have been sexually molested inside churches. The numbers are absolutely staggering. And that's not just within Catholicism. That's within Baptist churches, a non-denominational churches. It's a it's an epidemic. Southern Baptist Convention has had their controversies with it. Okay, Mormon, you name it, and 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 you want to say no? It shouldn't be that way. Well, I agree, it shouldn't. The reality is, two thousand years of church history, the church has demonstrated, and, and our go-to way, the way we always, the way it, it works for Christians is our our get out of jail free card is well, they're just not Christians. We, we didn't throw anyone who does anything bad out, right? But it's not that simple, right? Because according to the way Christians think, we would have thrown David out. We clearly would have thrown Solomon out, right? We would have thrown Samson out. We would have thrown Abraham out. We would have been thrown in everyone out. In fact, basically everyone mentioned in Hebrews 11, we would have thrown out. And so it's, it's, it's not that way. So, I mean, that's a horrible situation, but just remember God's people have a history of doing absolutely horrific and horrible things. And I know we don't sell Christianity that way, but it's a reality. And we've got, not only do we have all the history of Israel, we have 2,000 years of church history where we, the church has been engaged in some absolutely horrific things and supported some really bad ideas. All right, verse 32. Therefore, therefore, behold, the days shall come the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, uh, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beast of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Jerusalem and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. And remember, I took verse 31, for those who weren't here, or verse 34, I took verse 34 and said, that's what happens under the law. The law leads to what? No joy, no gladness, no myrrh, only suffering and death. Because the law will only lead to condemnation. The law was never meant to do anything else. And Christians still have in our brain that the law is the solution to every problem. The law has never been the solution. The law is only there to reveal to us 
that we need a different solution. I want everyone to realize that. The law is not the solution. The law is to drive us to the right solution. The law is to show you you can't do it. You won't. You will not do it. You will fall short over and over and over and over. But for some weird reason, Christians get this mindset that no, we just need to give the law to everyone and tell them they have to abide by it, either by force, by politics, by what. And I don't know why we fall for that. Israel had all the law. Did it work? No. Why didn't it? It's not the law's job. It's not even the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't. But the, main, but the reason it's not the law, the purpose of the law, is because the sinful nature, the sinful nature, the sinful nature is not fixed by the law. And, and, not, and, and I know this is controversy, controversial, but it shouldn't be. The sinful nature is not fixed in salvation either. Everyone thinks it is. But it isn't. It remains. And as long as it remains, then what? Then what is the, for a Christian, what is the purpose of the law? To constantly show us why we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, does it give us a guide in what we should pursue? Yes. Should we feel guilty when we don't? Yes. Should we agree with God what he calls sin is sin? Yes, we, so by no means am I making an excuse, but we have to understand the reality of the situation. That's where it ends. Verse 34, I want you to, that's life under the law. No joy, no happiness, no gladness, desolate, death, destruction. That's how life is under the law. Now, chapter 8, we started here. This morning, we made it pretty far. We're going to go through this relatively quick. It's pretty gruesome. It's horrible. And there's just no way to get around it. All right. At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of his princess and the bones of his priest and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven whom they have loved, whom they have served, after whom they have walked, whom they have uh, sought, whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor be buried. They shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. Simply put, what's going to happen? All, All the people who were guilty of all of these horrible things, even before the captivity, when the captivity happens, they're going to be dug up from their graves and their bodies are just going to be tossed around. And it's one, it's a way that the enemy would do what? To desecrate, but to humiliate and to intimidate. Right? Because you'd be scared of the people doing that, yes? God is having this happen as not to to demonstrate something. Oh, you didn't want to worship me? You wanted to worship the moon, the sun, the stars? Well, we're going to have you dug up, thrown out, your de- the dead bodies thrown out so they can be under the things that they supposedly worshipped and loved. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And I know it raises the philosophical problems that we you know, nobody wants to get into because clearly you, you would be like, there could have been... <laughs> There had to be a better way than this, but that's what, and, and to refer to them as basically dung, you know, they're, they're, I mean, that's a horrible, they're, they're going to be for dung upon the face of the earth. That's a, a horrible description, is it not? Uh, and death shall be chosen, they fall and not rise, shall, uh, shall he turn away and not return? 
Why then is this people of, of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Verse 7, Yea, the stork in the heavens knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people knew not the judgment of the Lord. What is he saying in verse 7? Yeah, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he preached a sermon entitled, uh, basically talking about birds. And he began, he, he began to talk about the different kinds of birds. And he says this, that birds know when to come and go. Birds know where to go. Birds, by some strange, some, some strange instinct, also know the way to go. And the birds show their wisdom by actually going. <laughs> All right? Birds know when to go, come and go. Birds know where to go. Birds, by some strange instinct, know the way to go. And they, they show their wisdom by actually going. But man doesn't. The birds just know when, where, how, they, and they do it. And we may know where, when, how, but we don't do it. I mean, it's, it's really... It, it, the, the, the contrast here is pretty shocking. And then in verse 8 is where we stop this morning. What happens in verse 8? How do ye say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribe is in vain. How does the NIV translate verse 8? Okay, um, and uh, and as, when it says, and the law, uh, see, uh, certainly in vain made he it. What is? How does that translate? Okay. Okay. So. Right. Right. I mean, this was an ongoing thing with Judah. Is and again, I just want to stress this, and I and I made a big issue out of this this morning from a practical standpoint. The thing that we should be confronted with is their spiritual arrogance and blindness, and the wor- and the worst. I cannot tell you. I, I mentioned it this morning. I'll mention it again. The worst spiritual blindness is the blindness to our own condition. They don't see it. They think we're good. They think we're wise, and we have. We have the law. And the church does that constantly. We're the wise ones, not the people in the world. We have God's word. They don't. We've got it all figured out. And we're so blind. We, we're so, we have 20-20 vision when it comes to everyone else. And we're absolutely blind to our own condition. We can't see it. They could not see it. And it's one of the most troubling things about Christianity is one, everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they have the word and they understand it. Everyone thinks their interpretation is right and everyone else's interpretation is wrong. And it leads to the spiritual arrogance and the spiritual pride. And they could not see, look, destruction is coming. 
But they would have thought, who was on their side? They would have thought God's word is on their side. Animals know better than they do. It's pretty bad when, <laughs> it's pretty bad when you think you're smart and God's like, no, those animals over there, the, those cows down the road, they know more than you do. Like, you know, that's, that's pretty embarrassing. Correct? I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's just crazy, right? Then verse nine, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken low. They have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Now, they, they don't realize it. See, in, in their mind, what have, they, what have they done? They're wise. In their mind, they're wise. In their mind, they have God's law. What is the reality? They've rejected the word of the Lord and the wisdom in them. It, it's it's got to be crazy to be thinking, I'm wise and I have the scriptures, and then point your finger at others and say, they don't. When God then looks at you and go, no, you have rejected my word and you don't have the wisdom. That, that is a, I, I would, I don't ever, I hope I never find myself in that situation. But I think we've all, again, we talked this morning, all of us have been guilty of spiritual pride where we think we've got it figured out and we know the answers. We, 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 it's just a, a frightening thing. And what's going to happen in verse 10? What's, how does verse 10 begin? Therefore, Will I give their wives unto others? Now that's, that is hard to comprehend. That is so hard to comprehend. There's so many theological issues that arises from all of this, right? So many issues that we could get into. I mean, they're so profound and Christians have been struggling with them for 2,000 years, but there's just no easy way to get around like, wait, there, there, there has to be a better way than people dying and death. And then what happens to the women? Yeah, they're taken by other men. God does nothing to stop it. God does nothing to protect it. In fact, God is the one in charge of the whole situation, is he not? Their fields to them that shall inherit them for every one of, from every one, from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness, from the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What do you think verse 11 means? What do you think verse 11 means? Yeah, read it from the NIV if you want. Yeah, the, the, people, the people may be hurting, the people may be worried, the people may be concerned. They bring a little bit of like trying to heal it, but they're not taking it serious because they're telling them what? Peace, peace, everything's okay, everything's okay. And how are they going to say everything okay? Look, we have the temple, we have the ark, we have priest, we have this, we have the law, we have prophets, we have it all. We're okay. And, then the, and they all think that they're wise and think they're okay. Now again, once again, you would think God could have intervened and found some way to stop the false prophets, don't you think? I mean, this is always the hard part about God's sovereignty and his, his power and all the problems. Yeah. Yeah, who are you? Yeah. Yeah, ignore him. Yeah, who's, 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 
And it's weird because on one hand, it's always weird the way it works. Even, even Christians struggle with this, right? Because on one hand, we know that the Bible constantly seems to indicate that the, the, the right way is always the narrow way, a few that find it, right? And so we have these constant examples where the majority are in the wrong. All the prophets are wrong. The entire nation is wrong. And you got one man who's in the right. Now, we, we, on one hand, we romanticize that and go, yeah, that is so true. We stand against the majority, right? But within Christianity, we don't really operate that way, right? If a church is not growing and there's not lots of people, what's almost in, inevitably some, some, somebody's going to say? Something's wrong. God's not blessing it. Obviously, God's done with it. But look over here, we got people joining, we got people growing, God's doing something. But what we have to say is over and over and over, the majority, that doesn't prove anything. Now to be fair, minority doesn't prove anything, majority doesn't prove anything, but then it comes back to the only way that proves anything is what's, in, what's according to God's word, but everyone claims that their side is on God's word, so which is just so frustrating. But in this particular case, Jeremiah's, he's by himself, because he's not preaching that message, is he? Yeah, the peace, peace. He's not preaching that message. His message is contrary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that they're, they're dealing covetously, and, and there's, there's greed. Like, I mean, the whole, the whole system is just completely messed up. Verse 12. And, and I, I, it is, do you not find it, and this is just a side note, but don't you find it a little kind of bit, dis, a little bit disturbing, right? That the entire structure that God set up, temple, priest, in this case, all of that structure is corrupted. You can't look to that for the answers. You would think, well, wait a minute, if God established the temple, if he established the priesthood, shouldn't that be the place to go to find the truth? But that's so corrupted that you can't turn there. That, that would make it very difficult for the average person to know where to find truth, right? I mean, who established the temple? Who established the priest? Now, who can you listen to? And none of those places. In fact, and in and, and Jeremiah 7, where's Jeremiah sent? He's out standing outside the temple. He's standing outside. The, the, tr- the true message is being preached not inside, but outside. That is a troubling thing. But it, it does raise questions, now depending on one's eschatology, of how, what the future church is going to look like. Right? Because if we understand it correctly, right, Mark, Mark Jeremiah 9, I don't want to get too far off track here, but it does, it does raise the question. Now, this is what led Harold Camping to go crazy with his interpretation of Jeremiah. So I don't want to go crazy, but I can see why he would have struggled with this a little bit, right? Because if you're like, well, wait a minute, the, insti- the institution set up there is the institution you can't trust, right? You can't trust the priest, you can't trust that. Well, then he was like, well, his argument, well, because he had to change his eschatology a little bit, but he started thinking, well, wait a minute, what is it going to look like in the later time, right? The last days. Second Timothy chapter three, 
This, also, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. 2 Timothy 3.1. 3, Everybody see that? 2 Timothy 3.1. Everybody there? So this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Now typically the way this is preached is, hey guys, look at this. Now let's look at what's going on in the world. Let's look at what's going on in Hollywood. Let's look like what's going on in the secular music industry. And then they find these things and say, see, we're in the last days. But that has literally nothing to do with this passage. Because number one, all of those things have been going on in the world for how long? Forever! Right? Not only that, look, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, and then look at that phrase in verse four. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That has never, that's, the world has never loved God, right? This, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the church. He's describing what the church is going to look like in the latter days. Paul is writing to whom? Timothy. And he's instructing Timothy how to do what? How to, how to lead the church, right? Isn't that what this whole, the whole two books are about? They're called pastoral epistles, right? This is him telling the date. This is what the church is going to look like. And look how bad is it going to get? They're going to be traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. Now, if the church is headed in that direction, depending on your eschatology, if the church is headed that direction then what is the day going to look like when, as a Christian, that's the church? It's going gonna, it's gonna to resemble a little bit of Jeremiah's day. Could they go to the priest? Could they go to the temple? They could, but the whole temple's corrupted. It's a den of thieves, right? Remember, we've been reading about it over and over and over, right? So then where could they go? Where was the truth being preached at that time? Outside, the, well, just by one man, Jeremiah, outside of the temple, not within the priesthood. Now, you can see why this led Harold Camping to go. The church is corrupt. He just went ahead and jumped the gun. Like, it's over. The church is done. Everybody leave their church. That's why he preached everyone to leave their church. And he said, if you stayed in the church, you'd taken the mark of the beast and you couldn't be saved. Now, he went crazy with it. But it was based off Jeremiah. And I can see why, because in Jeremiah, where's the problem? I mean, he just said, the priests are corrupt, everything is corrupted. The whole situation. Right? And and it got so bad, I mean, the whole thing is just a mess. Well, if the latter day is coming, and we don't know when that latter day will be, it sounds like what's going to happen, that Christians are going to wake up one day, and what's going to be the condition of the church? It's going to look a lot like Jeremiah. It's going to look like the days of Jeremiah. Now, when the church looks like that, then where do people go? Do people leave the institution? Now, some people say, well, the church was never the institution. The church is where believers gather together, right? But then, so then the institutionalized church is going to have to be abandoned. And then, then 
what's that structure going to look like? It's, it's going to be weird, right? Now, some people have already called for that, and they create house churches. And there's, there's pros and cons to that, right? There's pros and cons. Because in, t- in some cases, it ultimately takes the shape of a church anyway, right? I mean, that was the thing with Harold Camping. Basically, is everyone leave the church, and then you just turn on the radio and listen to him. Okay, well, that creates a major problem, right? Okay, that creates a problem. But... Uh, it's, it's, it's a question that has to be asked, and I don't think a lot of people know the, a good answer. What happens when you wake up, the perilous times have come, and the church looks like 2 Timothy chapter 3? Because you're told to do what from them? From such, turn away. I, I don't know what you do. It's, it's a question that I think every Christian, we don't have time to try to answer it now, but it's something to consider that if our eschatology is right. Look, remember in eschatology, you got two different eschatologies, right? Some people think they're going to get better and better and better and better. And the church will so take over everything that will usher in the kingdom. I reject that eschatology completely outright. I believe things are going to get worse and worse. Now, typically we think about it's going to get worse where? In the world, it's going to get worse in the church. It's going to get worse in the church. And then you're going to be left going, well, then where's biblical Christianity? Can you imagine a time where biblical Christianity is not found in the church? But in, we, but in some ways, we have a historical precedent. Because in Israel, the time came where the truth was not found where? In the temple. That's pretty crazy, right? In fact, it was so bad. And and what, 600 years after Jeremiah, about 600 years, Jesus comes on the scene. What's the condition of the temple at the time? Pretty bad. Jesus, in fact, takes a whip and does not. And once again, in Jesus' time, let's just listen to it. Where is the truth found? Is the truth found in the high priest? No. Is it found in the priest? No. Is it found inside the temple? No. Where was the truth found? Well, and all he did, he, all he did was took a whip and drove everyone out. Yeah. Right. Well, in the synagogue. They're in the synagogue, right. A couple of times, but he went pre- But even there, they drove him out. He wasn't welcomed. So ultimately, where was the truth found in Jesus' time? Not in the institution. It was, once again, outside of it. That's a bizarre thing to contemplate, right? That we have like two clear examples in biblical history where the truth wasn't found within the quote-unquote the institution. It was found outside of it. And then I believe here, Timothy and other passages seem to indicate the time is coming that the church is going to get more and more corrupt, more and more. Apostasy is going to abound. Where does apostasy abound? Not outside the church. Inside the church. And when the church becomes apostate, where will the truth be found? Outside the church. That's going to be, I look, I don't know how you process all of that, but I'm telling you, you're looking at an example of it in Jeremiah chapter 9. Does that make sense? Everybody good with that? Okay, what verse did we just stop? There was chapter 8. We stopped with verse 11, right? Because they're preaching peace, peace. Okay, then verse 12. 
Uh, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. There, therefore shall they fall among them that fall, and the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And he's probably referring to those who were preaching peace, peace, right? Okay, verse 13. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaves shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Now, Israel being described as a fig tree or a vine is common figurative language, right? And basically saying what's going to happen to them. They'll be stripped bare. They're not going to produce anything. It's just a, a horrible situation, all right? Verse 14. What does it say in verse 14? Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities. Let us be silent, therefore, for the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us waters of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Basically, what is it saying in verse 14? Basically, do what? Here, the, according to one commentary, the prophet is imagining the people of God fleeing to the fortified cities as the Babylonian invaders entered the land. They could only do so in silence because they knew they had ignored God's warning and invitations to repent. In other words, hey, this point, all they can do is try to go find a fortified city to hide in and there's no point in saying anything, so be silent because who's not listening to them at this point? God's not listening to them at this point. That, that's a pretty bad place to be in. Yes? All right, verse 15. We looked for peace, but no good come, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of his neighing of his strong ones, for they are come and have devoured the land, all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, uh, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. Right? Meaning basically what? All of this is figurative language describing the coming of ultimately the Babylonians. Yes? All right. Uh, verse 18. When I would com- comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in the far country, is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Pretty strong words at the end there, is it not? Um, I mean, I don't know what else you can say there. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, there, 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 there's a brokenness here. There's a grief here. There's a, there's a not even, not even knowing how to. To respond to it, I think what I think we the one question from an interpretive hermeneutical standpoint that we could ask ourselves, verse 18 to 22. I want you to look at it carefully. Who's speaking? 
18 to 22. I don't know. Y'all, y'all, can, y'all can debate amongst yourselves and see what you come up with. All right, so we have one saying that God's speaking through all those verses. Okay, so now we have someone saying Jeremiah is at least speaking. All right, well, I'll give you a breakdown in how one handles it. You ready? Jeremiah speaks in verse 18 and 19a and 21. The people speak through Jeremiah in verses 19b and verse 20, and the Lord speaks in 19c. (laughs) Don't you love that? Hey, the Bible is super clear. Anybody can understand it. All right, let's break it down that way and see if that works. The first place they say Jeremiah speaking is verse 18. Why, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Does that sound like Jeremiah? I think that sounds like Jeremiah, right? You think God would be able to comfort himself, right? Okay, so are we we pretty good with that one? Okay, all right. I'm going to read from this commentary. With desperation, Jeremiah prophetically saw the tragedy that followed upon the devastating Babylonian invasion. All right? So they they definitely seem to have Jeremiah speaking here. Okay? Are we good in verse 18? Now, 19, I think the one, uh, one breaks it down into three different parts, A, B, and C. All right? So let's see what, we, what happens here. Verse 19. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. They think that's Jeremiah 19a. What do we think? Uh, The way this commentary puts it, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country, this was the cause of Jeremiah's desperation. The daughter of his people no longer lived in the land God promised them. Instead, their cry was heard from a far country, meaning... Jeremiah is upset because he knows the people are going to be, he's prophetically seeing where they're going to be. They're going to be crying from a far country and not in the land that was promised. They've lost the covenant promise, right? Okay, right? So they say that that is. Now, where does 19b start? Is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her. Everybody see that? All right, now they say 19b or is the people speaking through Jeremiah? Okay. So, behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people because of them that dwell in a far country. And then supposedly then the people are saying, is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her. Is that what the people are supposedly saying? Do we agree with that? In this commentary, in amazement, Jeremiah wondered how his people ended up in exile. He wondered if God had left his own land, if he had no longer reigned as king of Zion. They, this commentary puts it as Jeremiah. This commentary says the people is speaking through Jeremiah 19b. So is it the people or is it Jeremiah? 
Okay, so we can say that Jeremiah is kind of relaying the message of what the people said. And that the people are saying what in 19b? Yeah, basically, where's God? Where's God? Now, it's weird if that's what the people are saying, because they're saying, where's God, instead of saying, what have we done? Which would, which would be kind of crazy, right? Okay, but it kind of would be go with their message. And then, what's 19C? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? Clearly, 19C does not sound like Jeremiah. That sounds like God. Well, I know. Well, well, hey, don't you wish that was how it would work out throughout the Bible where we had clear, if we had clear answers, we wouldn't have 30,000 different denominations, would we? All right. But I want you to see because you probably, we probably could read right through that at 100 miles an hour and nobody would even stop to go, wait, who's talking? I want you to see that even in this one commentary, they have, they, they have three different options. Okay. In fact, three options and what? One verse. One verse, possibly three different speakers. That is insane. I, all I can say is when, when, a, when a book does something like that, don't even think that you can easily figure it out. That, that requires, I, that, that's, that gives me a headache, even trying to figure it out. All right? Who's speaking in verse 20? Okay, I, I, we definitely know it's not God. We can remove God from being in verse 20. Can we agree? Everybody agree with that? Okay, so it's either Jeremiah or and the people, or it's a combination. Uh, I say, uh, but it says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, we are not saved. Now, this one says, this was the sad lament of conquered Judah. Even into the exile season had even into the exile, season had come that there should be abundance in the land, yet there was not. They had to face the sad fact, we are not saved. All right, and then what goes on, then verse 21. Who's, pre- who's speaking in verse 21? Or verse, yeah, verse 21. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Now, one, uh, some verses have this as being Jeremiah, right? Um, So, is that Jeremiah speaking? I think most believe this is Jeremiah. This commentary here says, prophetically looking into the future, Jeremiah ached with hurt of his people who is mourning and full of astonishment. Uh, okay. Okay, that definitely sounds like Jeremiah, I think. Right, do, does everyone agree with that? Everybody get behind that? Right. In other words, I, he's feeling what the people are feeling. He knows that they are broken and hurt and he is hurt. And he is overtaken with, with fear, right? 
and astonishment. I mean, God wouldn't be because God would have known all of this was going to happen from the foundations of the world, right? Okay, so um, I, I think we could see. Uh, Jeremiah could mourn over the sufferings of his people because of his sympathy and love for them, yet uh, his very message spoke doom to them. Right, and then what's verse 22? Yeah, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? From this commentary, Jeremiah not only saw the hurt of his people in exile, but he also could see no help for them. There was no medicine. There was no physician. All was sadness and mourning. Gilead was the land just east of the Jordan River. It was known for its healing bombs. Scholars have been unable to determine how the bomb of Gilead was made, but it seems to have been a soothing um, a rap, a, a aromatic resin made from a tree or a plant. It might be compared to aloe vera. All right, but that's really irrelevant. The point is, what, 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 what Jeremiah is basically saying what? There's no help. There's no healing. Now, once again, let me say this. This is so important. How did chapter uh, 7 end? Verse 34. Helplessness, hopelessness, because that's, remember I said 734 ends with no joy, no gladness, because that's life under the law. And then chapter 8 ends with? Chapter 8 ends with, there's no hope, there's no healing, there's no solution. Now, what I think is amazing up to this point, what has been the solution that's been preached over and over and over and over and over? Do this, do this, do this, and they don't, they don't, they don't. Once again, demonstrating what is not the solution. The law. Even Jeremiah at this point realizes what? There is no healing. I mean, everybody read it. It's open book. It's open book. There is no bomb in Gilead. There is no physician. Why is there no health of the daughter of my people recovered? There is nothing. There's no hope. There's no help. Once again, it's life under the law. Life under the law. Under the law, there is no healing. Under the law, there's no bomb of Gilead. Under the law, there is nothing. The law cannot help you. The law cannot heal you. The law cannot fix you. The law can only condemn you. Right? It can only condemn you. Does everyone understand that? Chapter 7 ends with what? I want to make sure you get the ending of these two chapters. Chapter 7 ends with what? No gladness. No myrrh. No joy. Nothing bad. How does chapter 8 end? No healing. Is there a solution in the end of chapter 7? Is there a solution in the end of chapter 8? No. Right. It is, it is, it is one of total despair. Total despair. And I will argue that if anyone takes the law of God, if you arm yourself with God's law, right? All, just go, you start in Genesis, 
Go through the whole Bible. Get every scripture that says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Put away lying. Speak the truth. Love your neighbor. Love God. You know, put no covetousness, no lust, no anger, no wrath, no bitterness, uh, no, uh, you know, just you just go through it all, right? No covetousness. Just on. scripture after scripture after scripture. There are thousands of scriptures telling you don't do this and do this. Are, are there not? thousands, right? Which always drives me crazy. And I know what Christians mean by it. But to me, it's a misrepresentation. When, when people say, well, Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. Give me a break. That's all it is. It's do's and don'ts. But the problem is, is what you do with those do's and don'ts. The issue is not to ignore the do's and don'ts. What you do is face the do's and don'ts head on. And if you face them head on, where do you find yourself? No joy, no gladness, no peace, death, destruction, no healing, no hope, no solution. And then once you're broken down, then what can you say? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your grace, but I can only be healed by your grace. Now, the modern-day church thinks the healing of that problem is what? Come on, think about it. Most of your Christian friends, what do they think the healing message is of the gospel? Oh, come on. It's, it's, do I? To obey. That the healing message is God now makes you able to obey it. And you'll, like, well, they think the, the, the message is that God came to heal you so you can obey it. They think the healing message is, is that you couldn't, but now you can. So now the Christian life is you now obey all those do's and don'ts. And if you don't obey those do's and don'ts, then you were never saved because the power of the gospel is not to save the sinner, but to change the sinner so that the sinner can obey. They're radically different gospels. 99% of churches today, the gospel is God came to save you by giving you the ability to obey it. Remember the, the, the brilliant book by uh, R.C. Sproul, which I love. Uh, his, his dealing with, uh, he deals with a Pelagianism and he goes to Augustine. But even in that book, it's somewhat frightening because the chapter, I think, on Pelagius is that uh, something like uh, you have the ability or you know, something to, to believe. But then basically later on, I think the next chapter, or maybe he does a chapter on total depravity, but he does something about basically you can't believe, you can't live, you can't obey. You're unable to do so. And then the next chapter is, guess what? Now you can. Well, the minute you say now you can, then what should be the expectation in every church? Perfection. And the point is, we, 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 we never say, no, 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 no. And then we always back it up, right? No, 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 you don't have to be perfect. No, either I can or I can't. Yeah, well, it's, it's in his book. The way it's worded, it's basically the typically reformed message is before salvation, you can't. And after salvation, now you can. 
But the power of the gospel is not to make you so you can. The power of the gospel is to save you even though you can't and you never can. I, I, I just reviewed, I think I spent two hours reviewing a sermon the other day and, uh, and, and that was the message is the power of the gospel. You know what the power of the gospel is? To save you so that you can obey. And no, the power of the gospel is saving the sinner who can't obey and who will never obey. Does everyone understand how those are different gospels? My gospel is, Bobby, you're a sinner. Bobby, you have been a sinner. You are a sinner. You will forever be a sinner. You don't believe that you're a sinner. Let's look to God's law. God's law says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you have to obey it. Perfectly, personally, entirely, exactly, internal and external, perpetually. At any reasonable person would be like, I can't. And you say, well, here's the good news. Someone not only could, they did. That was the eternal son of God who came and kept it all for you perfectly, Personally, exactly, entirely, internally, externally, and perpetually. And then he died to pay for the fact that you can't, are not, will not. So all of that sin is paid for. And when you put your faith in him, all of his obedience is accredited to you. That, see, that right there, that's not, that's not giving you power. That's just declaring you to be what you are not. So now, Bobby's salvation is not, oh, dun, 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 I have superpowers, I can obey. No, now what the message is, is Bobby can say, in Christ, please note, in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. In practice, yeah, he's a sinner with the same sinful nature because the sinful nature doesn't Go away. Every other church would teach, Bobby, you're a sinner. That would preach pretty much the same message. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. They may even mention the imputed righteousness, but instantaneously say, if you don't do this, 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 and this, then you were never Say, making the gospel a message of changing you to obey it, not saving you because you can't. And then therefore, if you have to do this in order to prove you're saved, then roundabout, what are you saying? You must do it in order to be saved. Therefore, you're preaching a gospel of works, which is Roman Catholicism. And so to me, if you want to believe that, that's wonderful. Just go to Holy Family or Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Abilene. Just go back to Rome. Just admit it, that you like the message of the Roman Catholic Church more, but they don't want to go back to the Roman Catholic Church because then they can't be in charge and they can't tell everyone that they're wrong and they can't tell everyone their interpretation is wrong because they'd be told to shut up and sit down. Because the Catholic Church could care less if you think they have the wrong interpretation. You don't have the magisterial authority to question it. 
So they don't want to go back to that. They still want to be able to tell everyone, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're wrong because I've studied for 15 minutes. But at the same time, they want to preach the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are two different gospels. Jeremiah is giving us the, what, what happens under law, which is total despair, desolation, and destruction. The hope isn't that God will make me better. The hope is that God will give me a righteousness and declare me to be perfect, even though I am not, nor will I ever be, until glorification. And then what's the magic thing that happens in glorification? Well, just, just, we're changed, okay? I'm just using magic in a figurative way, okay? I'm not like actual magic, okay? Okay, what supernaturally changes, there, I use the word better, so everybody's like, oh no, he read too much Harry Potter, okay? All right, what supernaturally happens is that there's now no more a sinful nature. We have a new body, right? And that new body no longer, that's, isn't that the whole point of glorification, Some people want to preach it like we are basically glorified when? When we're saved. Because now, dun-dun-dun-dun, you have supernatural powers. You can do it. You can do it. You can obey. 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 And that leads to major problems. And that's why Christians will be like, I see it all the time. It's all over Christian articles. It's all over the place. You can't be a Christian and do this. You can't be a Christian and think this way. And what do you mean you can't be a Christian and do this or can't be a Christian? Who, who made that rule? My Christianity is not determined by what I do or don't do. It's determined by what Christ did. But it's always like, no, 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 no. You, Bob, you can't be saved and still be doing that. So then salvation is based off what Bobby does. That's just ridiculous. That's not Christianity. I, I, I'll go so far to say it's a straight up false gospel. Because those are two different gospels. They're not the same. They're radically different. They're radically different. You can't tell me that you're trusting in the mercy and grace of Christ and then turn around and look at Bobby and go, well, Bobby, if you do this and this and this, you're not saved. Then that's not Bobby being saved by the mercy and grace of Christ. That's Bobby being saved by what I do. And they'll say, well, no, no, no. You're not saved by what you do, but what you do proves that you're saved. But if you don't do it, then you were never saved, meaning I have to do it in order to be saved. That's just plain semantics. Jeremiah has led us to a very realistic idea of what it looks like under the law. And uh, when you have bodies being dug up and thrown across the land as dung, people are being killed, your wife is being given to someone else. I mean, that's a horrible situation. And guess what? The solution wasn't the law. Because finally, at the end of chapter 8, Jeremiah admits what? There's no bomb of Gilead. There's no physician. There's nothing to fix it. And guess where the guess where guess where the solution will finally come? See, wh- by the time you finish the Old Testament, right? 
you should be like, like literally, like if you're reading this like a novel, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you should be in tears. You should just be like, like this is the most depressing, horrible book that I have ever seen. You should just be like, you should be so tired of it and like, I don't even know what to do. And then finally, in Matthew, you start reading the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob. You go through all of that, right? All of that genealogy. And then you come down to this verse. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And his people, first and foremost, is referencing whom there? Israel. There's the, 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 the bomb of Gilead. There's the physician. There's the hope. Not in what they can or cannot do. And we have taken that beautiful message and polluted it with a workspace system that needs to be destroyed and ripped out of the church. And I, I don't know how to get people back to a gospel-based mind. Because as soon as you start trying to go a gospel-based way, you'll be immediately accused of antinomianism within like two seconds. And it's like, there's no point. There's just no point. All you can do is like, you know what? You're right. Call me an antinomian. You just go and show me how wonderful and holy you are. Okay? But the point is, they can put on a good act. They don't ever want us to see the private life, do they? Because if we can see what's going on in their mind and in their heart and what's going on behind closed doors, we probably would be like, well, you're probably not saved according to your own standard. But until they're confronted with that reality, they'll hold on to a gospel of works because they don't feel like they need a gospel of grace. Just like Judah didn't think that they needed anything because they thought they were okay. Right, Lord God, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, we uh, come before you this evening. Lord, we, we are broken and sad because what we see in the life of Judah is what we've seen in our own hearts and our own lives. We've seen the spiritual pride. We've seen the disobedience. We've seen the backsliding. We've seen the rebellion. And Lord, our only hope is not in what we can do or trying harder, but in the finished work of your son. He came to save his people from their sins. He saved Israel from theirs and he saves us from ours in the same way by his death, his blood and his righteousness that is given to us by faith alone. Let us never compromise that gospel message and let that's the gospel that will give us peace and comfort when everything else will only lead us to despair. May this convict us and may us give us much to meditate and think uh, on and we ask this in Jesus name and God's people said